You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Uh, One thing that as we're going through this series called Navel Gazing and to take our eyes just off of just our solely ourselves and that there's a whole world that we are called to reach with the good news of Jesus. I would like to kind of change the narrative a bit, and I'm not exactly sure how to do that. A couple weeks ago, I kind of proposed a question that we need to ask each other all the time. And it's one of the things that I think in Bible studies, even this week in our Bible study that we were in at Karen and Jeremy's house, we asked this question, where is God working in your life? Like, where have you seen God working in how you are interacting with the people around you? It's an important question that all of us, I think, need to ask each other all the time. Where do we see God working in our interactions with people around us, because I want to change the narratives. Right now, the narrative in Canadian church, and I'm talking to the Christians in the room, and if you're not a Christian, welcome. Uh, We love that you're here uh, with us. For the Christians in the room, the narrative of the Canadian church right now is that sharing the gospel is an abnormal, weird thing. And probably not many of us, including myself, have shared the gospel much and most people not at all in the last year right that's that's what most people live right most christians have not shared the gospel or can't even really remember the last time they actually shared the gospel with another human being outside of say a church context outside of a bible study so that's normal I would like to try to change that narrative that what should be normal is that talking about our faith with other people is just a normal part of being a Christian. In the New Testament, it seems like that was normal, talking about your faith with other people. Right now, it's not in the Canadian church. I think it needs to be. That narrative needs to change. Because we have this wrong narrative that talking about our faith is abnormal, I think we're making assumptions that just aren't true, that people don't want to hear it, that they're going to be offended every time we say the name of Jesus. That's not true. Not only do the stats indicate that, but I've also, in my dealings with people, that has not been true. There's like the one-off person that's, you know, don't talk to me about faith. Okay, no problem. Well, it's no problem to me. It's a big problem for you. But, um, but most people are open to hearing a story of faith. In fact, Lifeway did kind of the research for like non-believers, people who aren't Christians. Two-thirds of people are open to a discussion about Christian faith with their friends. They'd be open. They'd be curious to have that conversation. These aren't from Christians. These are from non-Christians. of people are open to a discussion about Christian faith with a stranger. That means one, if you opened up a conversation, one out of every two people would be curious about Christian faith. That's a big number. 
I think our assumption is that that number is a lot lower than like one out of two, but that's what the stats seem to indicate. In fact, seven out of 10 people said they would be open to hearing your life story of how you came to know Jesus. 70% of people would be open to hearing that. So their conclusion was that most people are not cold, but they're curious about matters of faith. And more and more and more in Canadian culture, the reason that they're curious is because they have no idea of, they have no faith background at all. And so to talk about Christianity is like, they don't have as much baggage as maybe yesteryear because they're just curious. I don't know what this means at all. We just had conversations with some parents at our school and they've starting to get around that I'm a pastor, which is always this weird thing. But it's, the fascinating part is they're curious because they have no context for what that even means. Whereas in previous generations, that was not the case. So most people are not cold, but curious. There is an important point to this that I think is that they added that most people will listen if you listen to them as well. But they won't listen to you if you won't listen to them, which makes sense. So their conclusion was tell your story about Jesus and listen to theirs and tell how Jesus meets their burden. I really want to take this seriously as a church. I've said this a lot, and I'm going to probably say this throughout this series. We could just kind of keep going as we are and meet together, and it's great, I, and we love our church, but if we want to make a dent in our city, we have to take this seriously, that the narrative of our church, we can't change every church, but the narrative of our church is that sharing your faith with people is normal. That's just a normal part of being a Christian. And to talk about that. Now, I do that with some trepidation. Uh, I do that with some trepidation because um, I've heard some good things from the church about kind of this emphasis and emphasizing uh, uh, evangelism specifically and sharing your faith with people around you. Let me tell you something, though. I, I, do, I, I do this. I don't, like, steamroll into this you know, willy-nilly. Do people say willy-nilly? I just did. But uh, I, don't, I don't say that. I say this with some trepidation because I, let me tell you something. If we take evangelism seriously, it's going to get uncomfortable in our church. It will. We're going to upset some of the uh, perceived customary comforts that we have if we started to take evangelism really seriously as they did in the New Testament. It will threaten to upset us or pull us apart that we've never like we've never experienced before. But I would say the solution is not to lie down in fear and hide, because it's the evangelistic heart that will bring us together. So listen to what I'm saying. Evangelistic activity will threaten us or even threaten to tear us apart, but at the very same time, it's the evangelistic heart that will bring us together. I know that doesn't make any sense but I think it's true. How do I know, know this? Because this has been the reality that's happened throughout church history, but specifically that's what happened in Acts 15. So I'm just going to walk through the story. I appreciated what Colin did last week, and we've kind of done this a little bit because these stories kind of speak for themselves. You really don't need to add a lot to these stories, and I appreciate what Colin did. He's kind of just walked through the story. This is what happened to Paul. So uh, this isn't really my message I'm just going to walk through Acts 15, and let me just, I had this one circled. I love this story, okay? I love Acts 15, so just a little 
little pre-warning. I'm going to get really excited about Acts 15. I love this story. So I'm just going to walk through it. There's no miracles in it. There's no jailbreaks. And those things are beautiful. And we're going to look at those passages, you know, next. And there's no persecution in this story. There's no stoning and, you know, dragging out of the city in this one, as, as awesome as those stories are, as Colin talked about last week. This one has none of that. This is a meeting. So everyone thinks meetings are boring. I love Acts 15, and it's a meeting, okay? This story is so important to us as a church. From the initiative and movement of the Spirit of God, as we've been going through, is there a weird light going on and off? I'm, I'm sensing something, so hopefully it's not. From the initiative and movement of the Spirit of God, as we've been looking at the last few weeks, Paul and Barnabas were called out of this city called Antioch and went on a journey to a different place. And I'm not going to rehash everything, but so many amazing things are happening. People are coming to faith. Miracles are happening. Signs and wonders that God is performing through Paul and Barnabas. It's people, people you would never expect are now coming to faith, not only in high positions, but in low positions of society. These, a whole bunch of people are coming into the church. It's amazing what God is doing. And where we pick up in Acts 15 is that they finish that journey and now they come back to their home church in Antioch. It would be like if we sent you out, Serena, Cherish, and Brian. You guys are gonna go abroad. You're gonna share the faith for a couple of months and then you're gonna come back and report and we're going to celebrate all that God had done. That's where we pick up in Acts 15. So they're back at their home church And they're celebrating all that God had done, but there's obviously a big problem in verse one because it says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now it seems simple. It's a big problem though. A huge problem for this movement, this new movement. What's going on here? So you need to understand that right now in, in that, that cultural moment, up until that point, up until Paul and Barnabas start traveling around, most of the Christian movement was made up of who? Jews. Mostly Jews. You know, by, there's a couple of, couple of exceptions, right? You got like Cornelius previously who came to faith, but by and large, it's a Jewish-led movement, The reality of that, though, is that not only did they share their faith in Jesus, because these are now Christian Jews, but they also shared the same culture. They shared the same customs. They shared the same traditions that they always would have had. Now you have Paul and Barnabas who have gone abroad. Now, all of a sudden, who is starting to flood into all of these churches made up of Jewish people? Gentiles who are non-Jews, if you didn't know. Anyone else who's not a Jew. You have this giant influx of Gentiles all coming in, flooding every church throughout the known world. Okay? Everywhere. And there's this inevitable conclusion that you can probably see like a, a, almost like a pressure cooker of different cultures now all of a sudden. That there's, an, there's amazing things happening, but under the surface as you read, you, you know something... It's going to explode at some point. There's a pressure cooker of different cultures that have come together and it's going to explode at some point because this evangelistic ministry made the church 
kind of messy in a good way, but messy in the sense of, oh, we've lost control of the people who are coming into this church. It made it unpredictable. Imagine, I was kind of like, as I'm imagining these Jewish people, because sometimes we can be like really, uh, uh, like almost like all those Pharisees as if we're not like them at all, which I think we're closer to them than we think we are. I mean, these are well-meaning Christian people still. They call them Pharisees. That's the tradition. Paul was a Christian Pharisee as well. These are well-meaning Christian people in churches. Imagine this, these Pharisees reading Paul's letter to Corinth. Now, if you don't know the First Corinthians, Paul addresses so many things. And if so many like messy problems that were happening in this church. Imagine a Pharisaic Jew coming to faith in Jesus, but then reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians. They're doing what at this church? What kind of people are in this church? Like picture, like, bro, they've, got, they've got sinners in their churches, you know? You know, you can kind of picture the, like, we got to tighten our grip, brothers. And it led to essentially this question. Must a Gentile become like a Jew in order to be a Christian? That was the question. Circumcision was kind of like the side issue, but the big question that was on the table for the council, must a Gentile become like a Jew in order to be a Christian? And that might be an easy answer for you here, but we have to sympathize with these guys because circumcision to them was the sign from generation to generation that they were the people of God. It's what made them distinctive from the world with all the privileges and access to God the Father. And now they're like, we're just letting anybody in through the door now? They should become like us in order to be a Christian. Now, we may not share the same custom of those Pharisaic Jews, but we do often share the same attitude. I know I do. They should become, maybe the question to you isn't, should a Gentile become like a Jew to be a Christian? What I struggle with, that person should become like me to be a Christian. That's the question that we have to wrestle with as we read this passage. They should become like us to be a Christian. And I don't think we realize how easily we can make a preference, whatever that is, a preference into a requirement, an opinion into a dogma, and a custom into gospel truth. And it's so ingrained into us, it happens, guys. And it's not just that church or that person, it's you and it's me as we read this passage. They should adapt for, to me for my sake, not the other way around. This is where missions throughout history have sometimes gone awry. Rather than the missionary adapting to customs in order to share the gospel, some missionaries required that the people adapt to them in order to hear the gospel. 
must a Gentile become a Jew to be a Christian? We have to wrestle with, must a person become like Aaron to be a Christian? This is what was going on. And it was a big deal. Verse 2, it says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, literally that no small dissension, it was literally true. They, Paul knew that this threatened to undermine their entire movement, and it was so serious, it says, that uh, they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders to answer this specific question. So let me just read. I know I read it through. I'm just going to walk through. Verse 3 says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed uh, through Phoenicia and Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. Notice what they're doing on the way. It's really important. And it brought great joy to everyone, to all the, all the believers that were there. And then so when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And again, they declared all that God had done with them. And then in verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Again, I just want to reiterate, like we're talking about Christians here. Paul himself was a Christian Pharisee. They believed in Jesus and were well-intentioned, but the reality was they sat on the other side of the table from Paul and Barnabas. And I kind of stopped there as I read through this for the first time. I mean, not the first time, but first time this week. You picture the scene, like the tension in the room. Have you ever been in a meeting, whether it's church or work or something like that, and there's a major disagreement and how awkward that is? And you kind of sit in the middle and you're like, oh boy, what is going to happen? This could go south. And it actually seems like at the beginning of the meeting, it started to go south. In verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And it says, After there had been much debate. So there's much debate going on in the room. And I don't know about you, but debate never is a good thing. Like, I've never been in a debate where I'm like, This is good. This is a great moment. Like, whether it's political or church, where you got people on opposite sides of the table, once it drifts into debate territory, you know no one's there to understand. You know no one's there to, like, we're just, we want to understand each other. No one's there to, they want to win, right? That's where it gets to. I've been in church meetings where that happens, where it's all about, I just, I, I want to win this fight. And it seemed like it could have gone in that direction, Peter stands, though, and this would have taken some guts. It says, after much debate, Peter stood up and said, and I'm going to read it in a second slowly because it's so important what he says. Remember, though, Peter is the same guy who struggled with this very thing. There's a in the book of Galatians, Paul brings out an incident with Peter where Peter was showing preference to Jews over Gentiles over table fellowship. He wanted to sit with Jewish people over Gentile people. So Peter is the one. This very issue, Peter is the one who struggled with it. 
showing preference to Jews. And it's not like Paul sent him a nicely worded email about it afterwards. Paul called him out for it. So if any way for, if there's at any time for Paul, for Peter to get back at Paul, this is the time to draw the line. Paul called him out. Would Peter be slighted? Would he be offended by it? Paul and his movement, you have to understand, they're a threat to Peter's influence as well. And I'm sure there are some in that meeting, as I said, when it drifts into debate, after what some of those meetings can feel like, there were some in the room thinking when Peter stood up, they're like, oh, here we go. He's going to speak for us, brothers. He's going to, you know, he's going he's to state our case. Look out. This is going to be a mic drop moment. They're going to tell him what's what. Here's our guy. Let me read what he says. Again, brothers, I'm going to have to read loud because we're, now we're getting in competition with the concert on the other side as they're doing sound checks. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And let me just, if we have a declaration, it just needs to be verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And everyone in the room said, amen. And everyone in the room said, if that's our declaration, let it be your declaration. And then it says in verse 12, the room fell silent. Debate over. No more debate. No more speaking. No more our side's going to win. After Peter says this, the room falls silent. It's, it's, it's like a holy moment. I think, I, I really believe this, like when Luke writes this book of Acts, this is the middle, like this is the middle event that happens in the book. And this council is the middle part that happens in the entire book. And in the middle of the council is this silence. I, I actually think in the book of Acts, like this is the holy moment in the book of Acts. The silence in this council room. You know, the, the, the question at stake was which direction is this movement going to go? And what's it going to look like? And this, there, there was this terrible uncertainty of, of where this was going to go. And then after Peter speaks the truth of God, there's just this silence that follows. As much as I've been to some meetings that were ugly, I've also been in meetings where this kind of thing, to a much lesser degree than this, happens where someone you wouldn't expect stands up and says something so true that needed to be said and there's just silence in the room. It's a holy moment. In fact, I won't tell the whole story. If you want to ask me after, I will. In fact, even this church plant, 
long before it existed, a meeting similar to this happened where there was a lot of distractions, a lot of opinions of leaders. And I just kept my mouth shut. It's probably a good thing. But someone you would not expect stood up and said something that needed to be said and there was just a hushed silence. It's almost like the debate doesn't matter, guys. What is God calling us to do? And to be honest, if that person didn't stand up, Restoration Church wouldn't exist. It would have gone in a different direction. But it took someone with the courage of the Holy Spirit to stand up in a room and say, this is what the Spirit wants us to do. Here's the truth. And it was a holy moment. I fully believe this. And why I'm kind of like leaning into this passage, I fully believe this. If we really follow the Holy Spirit in this church, we will need a moment like this. There will come a point where we will be threatened to pull apart and, 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 and go in different directions and succumb to our own desires for debate and I don't want to lose what, I'm, what I love. We will need a holy moment. We will need a silence, a moment of like, oh, this is what God wants us to do. And I want you to notice something really important in the text. Rather than raised voices and speaking and debate, there is a hunger now to listen. There's a complete change of posture. Uh, of posture. Rather than a debate of mortals, there's an anticipation for the divine. Look what it says, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It's really important. The posture had completely changed to, this is what I want to now, Paul and Barnabas, tell us, what has God been doing? Because that, that's what's important. What has God been doing? What they needed to be reminded of, the reason we are here isn't debate, it's because the mission of the mission Jesus gave us, people are becoming disciples. That's why we're here. That's why we're united. We want people to know Jesus. That's what brought them back together. That's why I say at the beginning, as much as evangelistic activity threatens us, it's also the desire for evangelism that will, in the same way, unite us. We are so prone to replace the true mission of God in the church for a flag, for an ideology, whether it be political, social, and we forget what we're actually united around, which is we want people to know Jesus. But it's so easy to be distracted with my own different flag and think that's what we're united around. And it's not. We can so easily fall into an ideological idolatry and replace the true mission of God in this church. This is why I believe there's so much disunity amongst what we call evangelicals right now. It's because we've replaced the mission of Jesus with something different. And everyone has an idea of what that is. Evangelicals are fractured because they've moved on from what united them, which in their name was evangelism. And it's not just evangelicals, though. Simply the flag that you wave 
We're the church of big music or we're the church that just plays the organ. That's what unites us. We're the church full of young people or we're the church full of old people. That's what unites us. We're the nationalist church. We're the sexual liberation church. We're the progressive church. We're the conservative church. And we fly a flag of ideology that's replaced why we're here, which is we want people to know Jesus. We're a church of Jesus. Amen? Peter says at the end of his speech, you, you're, when you put a yoke on people other than the mission that Jesus has given you, the grace of Jesus is the finished work that you rest upon, you're, it says you're not testing them. What does he say in the end of his speech? It says you're testing God. You don't challenge people, you're challenging God that your way is better than his in this church, that my idea of church and my idea of as a Christian is better than yours, God. Oh man, I gotta wrap this up. I like this story so much. I could keep going a long time, but I, get, I just let me read James's because James speaks next and he's gonna conclude the meeting. He says this. After they finished speaking, James replied, This is, by the way, this is James, brother of Jesus, so highly respected in that church. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me, and they would have listened to James. Listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, and this is the words of the prophet Amos, just as is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. That's the most mysterious part of the passage. I'll explain it in a second. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The point that James is making as he concludes this meeting is that God has always intended to bring the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that was always his plan. And actually, he says the prophets agree with that. Literally, that word agree means they play the same music. It's like they're playing the same song. The prophets have always spoken the word of God that the Gentiles were always intended to become the people of God. Long before people were okay with that, long before Jewish people were okay with it, God was already saying, no, they're going to be my people. For hundreds of years, he'd been saying that. This is what God has always been saying. You know, humanistic belief says that we need to bring God along to where we are. But it's always we are slow to adapt to, where, to God's way, right? God has been saying this for hundreds of years, and we are sometimes slow to adapt to what God has been saying. James' conclusion then is, why trouble? Why trouble uh, those of the Gentiles who turn to God? Literally, he's saying, why get in the way of God's restoration work? Why would we do that? Lastly, I just want, why the four abstinences? Some of them have had like cultic roots. Some people say that cultic roots associated with pagan idolatry, maybe. It seems too random to me. You know, you could bring up any moral thing. Um, but in keeping with the context and reason for this, why this meeting would, called, would be called, I believe this. As Gentiles who were saved, there were no requirements beyond grace, and we would say amen to that. Salvation is by grace through faith. 
But somehow after that, you have to live together. Somehow after that, you have to worship together. Somehow after that, you gotta serve together. You know, in, in our differences, you have to live and work and love and all of those things together as a church. And what I believe James is encouraging to those Gentiles who are being saved to be sensitive, not only the, Gen- the Jews to be sensitive to the Gentiles, but Gentiles, be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters whose custom it was to observe the law of Moses. Specifically, these four things are listed in Leviticus 18 for worship. And I think what he's saying is don't unnecessarily invite contention into the church. Don't, no matter who you are, let your soapbox become gospel truth. Don't let your soapbox become gospel truth. And don't let your soapbox become the church's mission. Jesus has already given us our mission, brothers and sisters. They don't need Aaron's soapbox. We stand, even lay down, and rest in Jesus' finished work. But Christian fellowship is messy, isn't it? Like, it's not that simple. Like, it, G- Jesus has paved the way that we could know God, but then we have to be together. And I love that Paul just assumed that rather than create different churches for different styles of people, you had to figure this out. How is this going to work? He's like, you're going to, he's not saying you're going to create a Gentile church, you're going to create Jews. His assumption was that you're going to be together as Christians. So you got to figure this out. With patience, love, and grace for one another. And why do we do this, guys? It's not that any of those things that unite us, it's that the mission of Jesus, we want people to know Jesus, unites us. Evangelism threatens to pull us apart, but ironically, it's the only thing that will keep us together. Restoration Church. God, thank you for your word. Man, it's a chapter about a meeting. I've been in some terrible meetings. But it actually sets the stage for what we are as a church. We want people to know Jesus, to know his great name. That's why we're here. And if we're united around something other than that, we've lost the plot. We've lost the plot. Lord, I... Search my heart. It starts with me. Search my heart. If there is a soapbox that I want my church, my church, notice, my church, to be united around and not the mission that Jesus has given us, Lord, take that away from me. Remove my pride. And everyone in this room, every Christian in this room, that you would search all of our hearts. We are united around the mission of Jesus would you replace that soapbox with the true mission in our church would it be normal to have conversations of faith with our friends and family would that be normal in our church challenge us God change our hearts May we not lead out with fear of that, but may we be brought together through that evangelistic concern. Lord, if there are some in this room who don't know you, who are just interested, who are curious, Jesus is the hope of the world. I pray that their hearts would be stricken and convicted by the Holy Spirit that they need to know Jesus. There are so many solutions offered in this world, 
but Jesus is the only hope. For peace, hope, love in this world, Jesus is our hope. And he's saying, come to me. All you who are weary, I will give you rest.